Hi everyone, it's George Conway, and I'm here by myself. Actually, I'm not by myself. I have Clyde here. Um, the reason why Clyde is here and Sarah is not is because Sarah and I taped the podcast on Monday, and on Monday we hadn't had a decision yet in the immunity case involving Mr. Trump that came down the next day. And so I'm taping this little supplemental insert that our team is going to put into the podcast at an appropriate moment, maybe at the beginning, uh, so that you can uh, get a little see of what happened in that decision that came down after we did the full taping. And the decision was, as you probably have already heard, an absolute blockbuster. And it was everything that everyone expected. I mean, I attended the oral argument. I think we may have discussed it on the pod. Um, and, and it was there was no question that Donald Trump was going to lose his argument, you know, that he could, uh, as president, order SEAL Team 6 to go up on Capitol Hill and kill everybody and not be prosecuted for a crime. And that just did not fly. The court unanimously ruled against him. And the only issue, um, really, that, that led up, uh, leading up to the decision was people were kind of freaked out about how long it was taking. And it's important to put that in perspective. Most appeals in the federal courts of appeals take much, much longer than the 28 days that this appeal took. And this was an expedited appeal, and you could have expected possibly a decision in a matter of days. I know I did. But 28 days is still pretty fast. And what we got for that extra time was actually just a, a gem of an opinion. I mean, it really is. I've read probably, I don't know, 10, tens of thousands of, of judicial opinions since I entered law school in, God help me, 1984, um, in 40 years. And this is one of the best opinions I've ever read on any subject, anytime, any place, by any court. And the bottom line holding really is set early in the opinion, says, for the purpose of this criminal case, former President Trump has become citizen Trump with all the defenses of any other criminal defendant, but any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. And the way they got to that conclusion, and it was basically by dismantling Trump's arguments. Trump made two uh, principal arguments in favor of his uh, claim of absolute immunity from criminal prosecution. One is the argument I just alluded to, which is that the presidency is something that the, the acts of a president, the discretionary acts of a president are something that cannot be reviewed at all by any other branch. And that is just not true. It's a gross overstatement. And the bottom line, as the court saw it, and, and, and going through 200 years of constitutional history, is that the president, can't, you know, the president's discretionary acts are ordinarily not reviewable except when they contravene law because the president is supposed to follow the law. The president is supposed to execute, take care to see that the laws are faithfully executed. The president can't go out and kill somebody, murder somebody, can't go out and steal money from the treasury, can't go out and take a bribe even for signing an act, signing a, a bill into law, which would be a which would be a presidential official act. So that 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 disposed of the first major contention. The second major contention is based was based upon the civil liability structure that has been developed over time with the president's with, with presidential immunity. And essentially, what that holds is, and it's it, it, it was it was a case called Nixon against Fitzgerald, where a guy who was 
a, a senior officer in the Air Force. He got fired from the Defense Department or something, and it was uh, he, he viewed it as some kind of retaliation by Nixon, I think. And and so he sued President Nixon in Nixon's personal capacity after Nixon had gone off to exile in San Clemente, California. And the court basically said that, well, we can't have the law, the president subject to lawsuits from any, just any private plaintiff, anytime, anywhere, because everybody is affected by what the president does one way or the other. And if we started imposing civil liability for what the president does or does not do, uh, we'd end up tying up the president in litigation and litigate, and the president would be spending his time sitting around thinking about, well, if I do this, I'm going to get sued. Maybe I shouldn't do that, even if it were in the national interest to do that. And, and what Trump does is he tries to leverage off of those cases by saying that, oh, the same thing would happen here. There would be, if, if you prosecute me, then there's no boundary to what could happen next. Somebody's going to prosecute some, some other president, could prosecute President Obama for, for, a, for a drone strike that killed Americans in some foreign country. So uh, that, the answer to that argument, it was, was pretty neatly taken care of by the Court of Appeals. The first answer was, um, we haven't seen that. You're number 45 and we're, you're number one. You're the only person this has happened to. So there really isn't that, doesn't seem like there's this big risk of, of floodgates opening where, with, with all these criminal prosecutions. Trump's lawyers actually conceded that presidents could be prosecuted if... The president was impeached and removed from office first, and they were forced to make that concession because that's actually what a provision of the Constitution called the Impeachment Judgment Clause said, says, which says that if somebody's impeached and removed from office, that doesn't prevent them from being criminally prosecuted, and there's no exclusion for the president. And so what the court said was, aha, you've made that concession, and we still have never seen a criminal prosecution of a former president until today. And then came my favorite line in the opinion, which was... The, uh, it was a quotation of the district court uh, from the district court's opinion that said, every president will face difficult decisions whether to intentionally commit a federal crime should not be one of them. And touche. I mean, that's that's just basically it. I mean, but the idea that that somehow this is going to create some major problem in the future when we only had one president who's ever done this before uh, committed crimes to stay in office is just absurd. And indeed, that was the ultimate conclusion reached by the Court of Appeals. The, the Court of Appeals looked to the civil immunity case law and said, what we have to do is functionally balance the interests of the presidency in not having been tied up in litigation or whatever the fear is, as articulated by former President Trump here, against the national interest. And then the court said, take, took it one step further and did so in a manner that really, really, I think, makes the, the decision bulletproof from this from the standpoint of further appeal to the Supreme Court. They said, we're going to just look at the case in the terms of what we have in front of us. We're going to narrowly look at this case and perform the balancing that the, that the immunity case law talks about in terms of this particular case. And in this particular case, it's not just the the general interest in enforcing the criminal laws that is at stake. This is about the laws that we have in the constitutional provisions and the laws that we have that require the president to surrender power after 40 years. And if somebody commits a crime, uh, like the president commits a crime to try to stay in office, I mean, that literally, if you don't allow the prosecution of that, 
there are no checks on the president because the president can just declare himself a dictator for life or, you know, not, not just one day as Trump seems to want to do. I would encourage everyone to read it. But if you don't read it, I've written a nice uh, summary. I think it's a nice summary uh, uh, of it in the Atlantic. And you can right now it's it's on top of the homepage. So you can click on it there. And the opinion, I have to say, is just so good and so strong. I, I, I really believe that there's a decent chance the Supreme Court might not might might skip revealing it because I don't think any court's going to write a better and clearer and and more on the money opinion than this. And if I were the Supreme Court, I'd think to myself, oh, we're not going to add anything to this other than the delay. We can still review uh, Trump's contentions after a trial, after he's convicted, if he's convicted. And the Supreme Court's busy with other stuff, which we talked about in the podcast, the main podcast that this is going to be part of. All right. I hope you enjoy the rest of our podcast. Even though we've talked about this 14th Amendment, I don't know that people quite have their heads around what a big deal this is going to be. Either way this thing goes, it is going to be a lot of people are going to be upset about it. It's going to have enormous ramifications for the fall. And and, It is a big deal. On a scale of... I don't know, legal things that you've watched happen before. How big a deal is it? This is up there. I mean, this is this is a this is a 10. There's no question. This is a 10. Okay. We haven't seen in, in the in the election context, we haven't seen anything this important since since Bush v. Gore. And that was a 10. This is this is one of the most important cases uh, they will ever decide. There's no question about that. everyone, and welcome to George Conway Explains It All. I'm Sarah Longwell, publisher of The Bulwark, and I am here with my good friend, George Conway from the Society for the Rule of Law, and he is going to explain legal stuff to me. So for those of you who don't know me, I'm I'm the publisher of The Bulwark. I've got something called the Focus Group Podcast, where we listen to voters from across the political spectrum, talk about different issues. And I've increasingly realized how much legal news is going to dominate this year's election conversation. Because I'm not a lawyer, I wanted George to help understand the ins and outs of the Trump cases, and I thought other folks would too. And I gotta say, we are blown away by the amount of positive feedback and support we've gotten for this new show. If you haven't yet, please go to your podcast app and give us a five-star review. Send us questions at askgeorge at thebulwark.com. We love hearing from you. And George, I don't know if you noticed, we're number two. We're number two. We're the we're the number two podcast in uh, sort of political news. Two. We did better than we did better than Dean Phillips in the South Carolina primary. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh man, deep cut on poor Dean. Ow. Poor Dean. All right, okay. down to business. So right. this week we're going to preview the oral arguments in Trump v. Anderson at the Supreme Court, which is happening on Thursday. This is the case about whether Trump is qu- disqualified from being president under Section Three of the Fourteenth Amendment. So I want to start with some of the basics about oral arguments. Before a case is argued, both sides, they submit their arguments in written briefs. I had another lawyer explain this to me. So like, what's the point of the oral argument if both sides already have all the arguments in writing that they're going to make? Because one of the things that happens sometimes with briefs is that they kind of talk past each other. And the briefs sometimes avoid the hard questions that you know, if I'm writing a brief, I kind of write around the, the tough point sometimes that I'm that 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 could hurt me. And so 
it's a chance for the judges to basically drill down and say, okay, what's your real answer to this question, this tough issue? And to, you know, clarify things that might not be clear from the briefs, because sometimes you don't want to be, you're writing a brief, sometimes you're not as, as you know, precise as you might be, because you don't want to be quite pinned down. Argument is about trying to pin the lawyers down and trying to understand their arguments and focusing the lawyers on the things that you as a judge think matter as opposed to all the other things that the, that the lawyers may be putting in their briefs. And this argument is going to be particularly important because of the way this case has gone through the courts. Normally when a case gets to the Supreme Court there's just one or two very narrowly focused issues that the court is legal issues that the court is going to address. This course, this case came up so fast that they really didn't narrow the issues down, neither the lawyers nor the court. And I've written about that. And what the, what, what in fact Trump's people did when they filed a petition for certiorari is they didn't identify, which is what you normally do, the legal issues that you want the court to focus on. They simply said the question presented to the court is, did the, did the Colorado Supreme Court get this right? And that's just not the way you normally litigate these cases, but the Supreme Court took the case anyway uh, because it's you know, obviously very important and has to be resolved quickly. Now, you have argued in front of the Supreme Court, correct? Yes, once. Uh Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The judgment of the Court of Appeals should be affirmed for two reasons. First, petitioners have identified nothing in the text of Section 10b that overcomes the presumption against extraterritoriality for the charming Betsy rule. What's it like? Because in my head, I have, I don't know what it looks like inside the Supreme Court, but in my head, they're up very high and they're in robes and like little people are down below arguing in front of the mighty justices. Is that what it's like? Uh, Sort of, except the thing that struck me from arguing that, that day in March of 20, 2010 was how close I was to them. I mean, this is a huge, majestic courtroom with, I don't know how high the ceilings are, but they got to be 40-foot ceilings at least. And I was closer to the justices standing at the podium than I was in a lot of other courtrooms in my lifetime, even you know district court courtrooms or state court courtrooms, um, I was closer to the justices at that podium than in a lot of smaller courtrooms. And it was kind of funny. When you sit there, there's a, there's a podium. You're looking right up at the chief justice. He's, you, you could, you know, if you held a yardstick and you pointed it up at him, he could probably take it from you. Like you and, could boop, um, his nose, boop him on the nose? It's just very close. And in fact, when I was, I was sitting next to the podium which is where counsel sits when they're not arguing. And I remember thinking when I was writing notes to myself or to my, to my colleagues that, you know, it, I thought Justice Scalia could lean over and look and see what I was writing if I wrote it too big. I mean, that's how close you are in this large courtroom. And what's amazing about it is you end up in a conversation with these people. No, I mean, it was, it's like you're, you're talking to these people and they're talking back to you. And it's like a cozy little conversation, even though there are nine of them. And I, I will never get over that feeling of how intimate it felt, even though the courtroom is so large and majestic. Were you and nervous? I was nervous until 
I mean, what you do is you get out your first, what you're supposed to do when you argue, and this is even after COVID, they change kind of the way they do arguments after, during COVID, but what you've always had to do is you have kind of an introductory paragraph that, that gets you through the first 30, sec, 30 to 90 seconds. And it's basically what you're supposed to do. At least this is what the SG's office teaches its people. And this is what anybody who writes a book about Supreme Court appellate ad, oral advocacy tells you to do. Is you say, you say something like essentially, the judgment of the, of the Court of Appeals should be affirmed for the following three reasons. Or reversed for the, it was wrong for the following three reasons. And you go through one, two, three. So that you basically, in that first initial um, paragraph that you're, you know, you, people read that you can read that paragraph. You can't read much else. Um, you're basically laying out what you want to talk about. And once you get that out, I felt, you know, it was nervous when I was getting that out. But after that, when the questions started, I didn't feel nervous at all because it was, I had prepared so much. I had I had, I had prepared so much, and it was once I got immersed into the substance, into the back and forth, it was really like a conversation. That didn't mean I didn't talk too fast because I was a little hyped up. Um, I certainly did, but I normally talk pretty fast. So, it, it, you know, it, the, I felt that the, the, the nervousness went away. I also had an advantage in my, in my case, which I, I kind of wrote about, actually, when I wrote about, or about this Section 14 case a, a few weeks ago in The Atlantic. And... When I argued my case, I knew I was going to win because there was this moment. Actually, no, I wrote this about the D.C. Circuit case. I, I knew I was going to win because I had Justice Ginsburg busting the chops of my adversary. He went up first. So I kind of knew, like, okay, I've got, I've got six or seven justices at a minimum. And that, that helped me. Um, that's not going to help anybody here because I don't think uh, anybody knows exactly how these people are going to come out this time. Well, just... We already talked about this case. We did a whole episode. I think it was our second episode. Go right. back, listen to it if you want a refresher. But just can you give a quick, broad overview as we get into the substance here about what it is that the Supreme Court's going to be hearing during the oral arguments? Right. Okay, so the argument, the issue here is what the effect of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is on Trump's ability to hold office and therefore to appeal up to appear on the ballot of you know, of, of any state for either primary election purposes or general election purposes. And what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment provides is that if you have previously taken an oath to support the Constitution as an officer of the United States, and then you go and you, you violate that oath by uh, engaging in insurrection against the United States, or you give aid and comfort to the enemies of the Constitution of the United States, you are thereby disqualified from holding any future office. And so the question is, does that apply to Donald Trump? What did he do? Was that the, the district court uh, found that, yes, Donald Trump had engaged in an insurrection, but the district court, the state district court, went off on this very screwy holding that, well, but he's not an officer that's referred to under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And then the Court of Appeals, not the Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court of Colorado said, uh-uh-uh, uh, he is an officer to whom 14th, the 14th Amendment Section 3 applies and threw him off the ballot. And as the case comes to the Supreme Court, 
the principal issues that have been raised are, first of all, that officer issue, which I can get into. Another issue that has moving, moved up more prominently um, because Trump's, Trump didn't press it as much below, but he's pressing it much more, or at least he didn't press it in his cert petition to the Supreme Court, but he's press, pressed it more in his merits brief to the Supreme Court, is that whether Donald Trump engaged in an insurrection. They're also arguing that it's not an insurrection, what happened on January 6th, but that's just completely ridiculous. And then the other issue um, that really comes to the fore is whether or not there has to be some kind of a pro procedure that Congress enacts to determine whether or not a Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is triggered. And the argument is that unless, without such a procedure, you can't have fairness. And so therefore, Section 14, I mean, the, the 14th Amendment, Section 3 isn't, can't really be enforced unless Congress provides for a procedure. Um, well, right now, I mean, all of those arguments that Trump has aren't very good. And I'm not saying, I wouldn't say, like, take all your chips and put them on uh, an affirmance here, because this is a very difficult case prudentially and politically for the court. Um, to, to say that the leading candidate for the Republican, one of the major party nominations, is disqualified from office and therefore should not be, the states could throw, them, throw him off the ballot, is, is, a, is an incredible step. And it's nothing, nothing that we've ever seen before. And it gives a lot of people, just as a practical matter and as a prudential matter and as a political matter, gives them pause. And it's not just, it's not just people on the right who support Trump, but it's also people on the left who oppose Trump. And personally, my view of this early on was, I want to see Donald Trump beaten at the polls. I don't like the shortcut. I didn't, politic as a political matter, I didn't like the idea that somehow he would be given the argument that, oh, this was so unfair, I could have won, but, but I, I was thrown off the ballot by this, these terrible judicial decisions. But then I started really reading, after the Colorado Supreme Court decision came down, I read, in particular, the dissents, and I started reading the briefs, and I realized they don't really, the arguments are very, very strong that he should be removed. And that's going to be, the, that, that's the tension that you're going to see at this argument is, is are the justices going to be looking for some kind of an off-ramp from what the law seems to, you know, the plain language of the constitutional provision and the history behind it, are they going to try to figure out some kind of an off-ramp, uh, whether legally or factually or otherwise, to avoid this you know, very, very difficult conclusion that they have to reach? And so, what would an off-ramp look like? What's an example of the off-ramp? Well, the, the, the off-ramps are the off-ramps that, 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 that Trump is trying to, Trump's lawyers are trying to offer the court. One is this officer contention, the contention that Trump is not... That, that, that the President of the United States is not an officer of the United States within the meaning of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. The problem with that argument is that the Constitution in at least 20 places refers to the presidency as an office. So, ergo, if somebody holds an office, they are an officer. And the argument that Trump has been making and the Republicans have been making to, that he is that the president is not an officer is really based 
on what I think are completely inapposite uh, interpretations of particular clauses in the original Constitution, such as the Appointment Clause. And what the Appointment Clause says is the President um, gets to appoint officers of the United States whose um, selection isn't otherwise specified by the Constitution. And so what they're saying is, well, if the president gets to appoint officers of the United States, therefore he is not an officer. But that doesn't follow. He could be an officer of the United States whose the, the method, where the method of selection is provided for in the Constitution, which in fact it is, <laughs> through the Electoral College in, in, in Article 2 and in the 12th Amendment. So um, that, and, and one of the interesting things that has come to the fore in the last couple of weeks is that there is a separate opinion by Justice Scalia in one of the cases that the Trump people very strongly rely upon. It's a case involving the NLRB and the appointments and, and, and the constitutionality of the, of the provisions for appointing um, members of the NLRB. Called a case called Noel Canning, and there was a concurring opinion where Justice Scalia said, you know, unless otherwise, he, he basically paraphrased um, the, the appointments clause. And then one of these law professors, a law professor wrote him a letter saying, well, does that, you know, does that, does that mean that the president is an officer? Is that what you're saying? And he, he, Scalia wrote back, I mean exactly what I said, that, the, that unless the if the Constitution provides some method for appointing, for, for selecting somebody, then this, the, the appointments clause doesn't apply, and that means the president. Essentially, he wrote that the president is an officer. It's just that he's somebody who, who's, um, whose method, who, who's selected by another method, specifically um, determined by the Constitution, and therefore not by the appointments clause. It means he's an officer. And so, and then if you go to the, to the history of the use of the word officer, there are instances throughout American history, and especially during the, the, the Reconstruction era, where people assumed and believed, and in, in accordance with the plain language of the term, that the president was an officer of the United States, the chief officer, to be sure, the chief executive officer, to be sure, but an officer nonetheless. So the problem is that, that, they're, that they're just any simple reading of the plain text of the provision hurts Trump. And that's where one of the interesting one of the interesting clashes here is going to be are conservative are the conservative judges going to be I mean they're stuck if they apply the normal methods that, that conservative judges should apply and do apply, which is you look at the text and you try to look at the and you try to determine the original public meaning of that text. This is what original textualism is all about. And if you look at that, the language is plain and there's the context is plain. There's just no way you can get around the fact that the, that the president is an officer for purposes of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. That's one argument. The second one is whether or not Trump engaged in an insurrection. And the, the, the Trump people have kind of moved that up in their presentation. And, but the problem that they have is they don't really deal with the actual evidence. They basically just, they basically ignore everything he did leading up to January 6th, and they ignore the things he did during, on January 6th, both at the, on the ellipse and when he went back to the White House, that 
you know, was about basically fomenting and inciting this insurrection. And um, as far as the, whether or not it's an insurrection is concerned, I mean, the basic definition of insurrection in any dictionary, old or new, or whether the time of the, of the framing of the 14th Amendment or otherwise, is that an insurrection doesn't have to be a coup d'etat. It doesn't have to be an attempt to overthrow the government as a whole. It, an insurrection is basically any use of force against a government trying to carry out its function. And that's what, was, that's what happened on January 6th. A bunch of people engaged in an insurrection that was designed to thwart uh, an action that Congress was required to engage in under the Constitution. And they succeeded for a number of hours in doing that. So the question really is going to come back to whether or not um, incitement in the way that Donald Trump incited the uh, January 6th insurrection suffices, suffices to support a holding which the district court here in, in the state court in, in, in Colorado and the Colorado Supreme Court affirmed that Trump had engaged in an insurrection. And there's a pretty, some pretty good historical and dictionary authority for the proposition that if you incite an insurrection, and, and in fact here Donald Trump was the principal cause of the insurrection because he's the one who, who urged people to come to the, the, the ellipse on January 6th. He's the one who told them to go march up to the hill on January 6th. He knew that they were armed and then later, not later he, 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 he threw gasoline on the fire by saying that uh, Donald, that, that, uh, that uh, Mike Pence didn't have the courage and they, uh, while he, you know, after seeing that there was violence on Capitol Hill and then he praised the, at the end of the day, he praised the, the, the insurrectionists. I mean, he wanted this to happen. That's what the district court found. That's what the, the Colorado Supreme Court found. And the funny thing is, in, in the Supreme Court of the United States, Supreme Court of the United States normally does not look at factual findings to overturn them. It is not a function of the Supreme Court of the United States to be the ultimate reviewer of a factual record. In any ordinary case, what the Supreme Court does is it takes the findings of the of the lower courts and accepts them unless there is you know even if they just he just they just accept them and normally a court, any appellate court um, does that unless the 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 findings are clearly erroneous so I don't know how the Supreme Court could possibly go back and say that that Donald Trump didn't engage in an insurrection unless they do something that basically says that. To engage in an insurrection requires you actually to bear arms and to actually be Johnny on the spot up on the Capitol Hill at the front lines or, you know, uh, where the violence is occurring. And, and that's just that that's kind of hard to support. It's just it's contrary to language and it's actually contrary to, to authority. Yeah, it seems so like the Supreme Court would be more loath to get into whether or not I it's would, an insurrection think, than whether yeah. or not he's an officer. Like that seems the safer course of of dispute. Right. I mean, you, you imagine what? Imagine the the blowback that would occur if the Supreme Court basically said, "Oh no, he, you know, Donald Trump didn't engage in insurrection." They don't yeah. want to do that, and it's not something they normally do. Getting into the fact. So that's, that's going to put more pressure on the officer argument, but the officer argument is just not very good. And then the, the, other, the other argument, that the other major argument that the Trump people have is this argument that somehow Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is not 
self-executing. In other words, somebody is not qualified to hold an office if they previously took an oath and then engaged in insurrection unless Congress provides a method by which it can be determined, the courts or somebody can determine whether or not somebody engaged in insurrection. And the problem with that is, is that's not what the, that's not what the 13th, the 14th Amendment says. And there are a bunch of other provisions of the 14th Amendment, including the one, the provision in section one that we are most familiar with, which is, which says that no state shall deny anyone, any person equal protection of the laws, which is the basically the basic prohibition against race discrimination and gender discrimination and, and all sorts of discrimination. Um, there, the, if, if Trump's argument were correct, that provision will be unenforceable um, without congressional action, which means that if Congress could, were to repeal all the civil rights laws tomorrow, then people could, the states could engage in racial discrimination. That's just not the law. And that's, that, that's not the law with any of the, the Reconstruction Amendments, including the provision that outlaws slavery and the, provi- and, and the voting, um, the provision that, that, uh, uh, on, on voting rights. So it's not, um, I don't know where they're going to get, I don't know how they win this. I, so my, I just, do, do they have yeah. to use one of Trump's arguments in they, order to well, decide the case they in his favor? They could come up, yeah, they could come up with something, and I don't know what that something would be. Sorry, but Mr. Trump, the, you've made no compelling arguments. Let me give you the, let me give you the key to the test here. Uh, yes. And if they came up with something else, they could do that. Yeah, if they did, and then and then they, they could ask for a brief. And that's why the argument's going to be very, very interesting. What are they going to focus on? Who, who is and doing the arguing? Like, who are the lawyers? The lawyer, there's a, a fellow named Jonathan Mitchell who's going to be arguing um, for, the, uh, for Trump. And he's from Texas. I, I, I forget what post he held in the Texas government. He's the guy who came up with the, with the, the idea that you could create a private right of action um, to enforce Texas's um, prohibitions uh, against abortion. Ah. I mean, that's what he's known for. He's a, you know, and, um, the, and, and I think this, uh, there's a fellow from Colorado who's going to be arguing um, for uh, the plaintiffs, uh, the, the, the Anderson plaintiffs on the other side. I, mean, I didn't actually take a look in, uh, on the Supreme Court's website to see who they have. Argument. They might be famous a week from now, and we'll they, know their they're names gonna be forever. Famous. They're going to be <laughs> famous by by noon noon on on Thursday. Absolutely. So you filed an amicus brief, mm-hmm. uh, and I understand that amicus means friend of the court. Friend of the uh, court, yes. And and when people they send in these amicus briefs. Uh, they do that when they feel like they have an interest in a case. My guess is that everyone and their mom thinks they have an interest yeah. in this case. So, but why don't you tell us about your amicus brief and how many amicus briefs do you think that the Supreme Court got on this for this particular I, case? I did not do a full count. There must be at least three dozen briefs. I, 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 I have not done a full count. And our brief was pretty straightforward. Um, and it's joined by... Judge Ludig and some other people. He's like the principal luminary on the brief. And our argument is just look at the text, guys. Look at the, if you're a textualist, look at the text. Look at the text of the Constitution, Article of, of, of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And, and really just emphasize to the court that if it applies its ordinary methods of constitutional interpretation, which is, again, first of all, to look at the text and try to, to divine the original p- 
public meaning of the text, um, Trump loses. So it's really, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a conservative argument made by conservative jurists and, and lawyers um, at, you know, to, to, at the conservative justice to say, hey, you know, you, you got to put your money where, the, where your mouth is here. Did you see any of the other amicus briefs that came in? Like, do you know who else filed them? Was there any that were weird or that you were like, boy, that's a strange person to join in on this? Yeah, there were. And I, I, I confess, I, I, one of the things, I, I just started to go through them. And there are some decent briefs on both sides. Um, uh, and there are some weird briefs on, on both sides. I don't have the list in front of me. Um, but there are, there, there are all kinds of people, from law professors to random individuals to um, re- senators and congressmen and former senators and cong- former congressmen and pub- other public officials. I mean, everybody has something to say. And, and you know, the problem with the, for the court is a lot of it is highly repetitious. Who reads all those? Like, I, for some reason, when you talk about things like this, I just am like, somewhere there are a bunch of poor staffers, poor clerks yeah, who have to funny, read. You know, I, I, I could tell you what I would do if I were a justice, and I, suppo- I suspect that's what I, I, it just seems to common sense is I think you'd go through the piles of briefs, you'd absolutely pick out the party's briefs, and then when you saw you know some credible people either joining the brief or writing a brief, an, an amicus brief, you might pick some of those out just to see what's you know what they're saying to, and you you take some select some seg- section some selection of the amicus briefs and you'd read those. And then you'd rely on your law clerks to point out, is there anything new or different in any of these briefs that, that, that adds something? And it's not duplicative. And um, that's, that's how I would go about it. And then if so, well, give me that brief and, 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 clip and you know, put a post-it on those pages and let me see it. That makes that's, sense. That's what I would do. So I, I, don't think, I, don't, I, I don't think it would be worth reading every single page of every single brief. Yeah, that sounded, especially yeah. the one that comes in from like, I have an opinion, Twitter rando, 6625 or whatever. Uh, yeah, because anybody can submit these. Uh, yeah, so, they're, they're very, very liberal about, about taking these things. And basically, there's no, anybody can file one now. Yeah, do you think they'll pull out, you got, when you say people who seem credible, do you think they'll, uh, you and Judge Ludig, they'll be like, let's see what these guys no, have Maybe to say. not me, but definitely Ludig. I mean, yeah. they're going to be looking at Ludig's, a brief joined by Judge Ludig, no question about it. Uh, all right. So for folks who are going to listen to the arguments online, which you can, right, like you can listen to them as they happen. I guess C-SPAN has them, but just the audio. Um, yeah, they'll do a live stream. So you can basically listen in real time. And I think uh, not just C-SPAN, but I'm, I think I, I'm sh- I wouldn't doubt that um, some of your major news networks, uh, cable networks will be will be covering it live. And what are you going to listen for? Because one of the things I've heard this said by people who know things about legal stuff from time to time, that you can tell a lot about which way the judges are leaning uh, by the questions they ask. Like, what are you going to be trying to hear uh, or listen for to, to glean which way you think things are going? Yeah, you listen to see which what issues concern each of the justices. And, you know, it's it's a it's a perilous thing to predict sometimes what a judge is going to do on the basis of the questions because judges will you know ask questions sometimes both ways and they'll play devil's advocate. But 
I do think what we will be able to tell is whether or not which, which of the off-ramps they are most focused on. And also, maybe we'll find out that they, that, that, that they find this case, they find it hard to avoid the proposition that, that Donald Trump should be disqualified. We may find out that, they, they, that, that, that they're going to really struggle with this case. Because a lot of people just assume that this case, you know, isn't going to be given the time of day in the Supreme Court and that it's going to be easy for them to, to, to slough it off. I think it's going to be harder for them. And I think it's going to be very, very interesting to see what the questions are and, and, and whether or not they, you know, whether or not they seem satisfied with any of the off ramps. And, and the other thing about this argument that I think makes it really particularly important to listen carefully and to try to you know try and try to figure out what's going on about it is the fact that this may not be a you know a right left conservative liberal split here and because again because it's uh, because there are you know we've seen it out in the public that 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 not you know the conservatives conservative lawyers were the ones who came up with this argument because it's a textually strong argument and then there are there are liberal opinion organs that are basically saying, "Oh, this is too much." So you know it, there could be some scrambling here of the lineup. We just don't know. I mean, I, I think it, anyone who says they know what's going to happen on Thursday is smoking something because I think we have zero idea what's going to happen Thurs Thursday, and I don't really think we have a clear idea of where the court's going to go. And maybe we won't even have a clear idea after the argument. So now I don't think this is going to be like the. The D.C. Circuit argument in the immunity case where it was pretty clear um, how they're going to come out. And I still think that they're going to come out with that pretty soon. Yes. You, so you've been clear that you're a big fan of disqualification as a matter of the legal analysis. But yeah, as a matter the, of the legal analysis, I prefer, you know, I, I, I prefer to see him trounced at the, at the polls. I think politically that's a more satisfying outcome. But, you know, this one of the things we're going to hear in the argument on Thursday is, one side is going to be saying this is highly anti-democratic, and then the other side is going to be saying, no, 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 this is what the framers of the 14th Amendment, the, what the Reconstruction Congress and the people who approved in the states uh, who ratified the, the, this constitutional amendment, this was their effort to preserve democracy by preventing people who would overturn the Constitution and violate the Constitution and shred the Constitution from holding public office. I mean, this... It, it, this is, a, you know, this is about preserving democracy. Yes. And as conservatives remind me in the focus groups all the time, we are not a democracy. We're a constitutional republic. So, okay. uh, you know, uh, but hold on. Once I want to ask you, though, you know, so I know you're a fan of disqualification. You've said it could go either way. But there's a decent chance that that doesn't happen. Right. There's a decent chance they look, right. they go for this off ramp. What is the potential fallout uh, if they do this like Trump claims total exoneration. You know, he says he didn't do the insurrection. Do liberals feel like they're already after Roe uh, questioning the legitimacy of this Supreme Court? Does it exacerbate that? Like, what do you think happens if they don't go for the disqualification? Well, I, again, I, I think it really depends on what the lineup is and what the holding is. And I think we have no way of foreseeing that. Because again, it's you know it may not be a five-four conser or six-three conservative versus liberal holding. In fact, I, I'm I, I think it won't be. 
Um, and then it really depends on what arguments um, they accept. I mean, if it's a highly technical argument based upon a, I think, wrong and tendentious reading of, of what the word officer means in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, that, that's going to have a different effect um, politically or public on the public discussion than the, the court saying that Trump, that, that January 6th wasn't an insurrection or that Donald Trump did not engage in an insurrection. Okay, it really is going to depend on what they say as much yeah. as anything and who says it, uh, how the public reaction is going to be. And I just, at this point, I would not hazard a guess as to how, how that's all going to come out. Can you hazard a guess on the timeline? Because we had a lot of listeners write in to ask about when the decision might come for this case. Best guess? I, I, look, obviously, I think they want to decide it very quickly. But I think they could easily, I mean, I think there's a lot of pressure for them to decide it quickly because, you know, the, 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 the primaries season is ongoing on the other hand, what this really matters for is the fall. And I, I think they could take anywhere from a month to the entire length of the term through, Jan through June 25th to decide this. I just, I just don't know. I mean, I think they're going to, you know, I think it's going to be very difficult for them to try to figure out how to write this. And I think it's going to be, I, I think it could be a very fractured court. So I don't know that we're going to, I would not expect the decision within a couple of weeks, I think it's going to be much harder for them than this. And I guess the reason that we wanted to do, even though we've talked about this 14th Amendment, and the reason we really wanted to tee up the oral arguments is, I don't know that people quite have their heads around what a big deal this is going to be because of what you just said. Like, either way this thing goes, it is going to be, a lot of people are going to be upset about it. It's going to have enormous right. ramifications for the fall. Um, if, if for some reason they do disqualify, we will have seen nothing like it. Uh, in our lifetimes if they don't um, you know that's going to have ramifications too so uh, I don't know it's it's going to be a big deal and, and it is a big deal on a scale of I don't know legal things that you've watched happen before how big a deal is it this is up there I mean this is this is a this is a 10 there's no question this is a 10 okay we seen, in, in the in the election context we haven't seen anything this important since since Bush v Gore and that was a 10 this is this is one of the most important cases uh, they will ever decide. There's no question about that. Yeah, and lots of people still have strong feelings about Bush v. Gore. So if you think about it yeah. that way, uh, it's Absolutely. a huge, huge case. All right, guys. Thanks to all of you for listening to another episode of George Conway Explains It All. To Sarah, that's me. Don't forget to hit subscribe. Send us your questions at askgeorge at the bulwark.com, and we are going to see you next week. Bye, guys. Hey.